Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. Today was day 35 of the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings and uh, it is June 9th as well and so that means it is now uh, three months since uh, Lisa Banfield was uh, referred for restorative justice on her uh, criminal charge of supplying ammunition to her spouse uh, Gabriel Wartman. Three months uh, is typically the time frame that one would expect in an ordinary case the restorative justice process to have been completed. I know Miss Banfield was supposed to have a review date in early May uh, and she was expected at least to be now cooperating with the Mass Casualty Commission but uh, just mention that because it's now three months and there has uh, been no update on any of those things. We don't know what the process is uh, for restorative justice, nor whether, in fact, Ms. Banfield has been cooperating in any way at all or dealing at all with the Mass Casualty Commission. So a uh, question for somebody to ask, perhaps. So today, uh, day 35, there were uh, four foundational documents, broadly speaking, on the interoperability uh, question. So the RCMP's interoperability with uh, air support services uh, with the Halifax Regional Police with the 911 system uh, and sorry and then there was a witness panel on uh, on the radio uh, system uh, and sorry another foundational document on the, the radio system and then there was a witness panel on that in the afternoon so uh, there's some interesting things. Uh, I'm not going to cover everything. A lot of the detail in the radio stuff was technical. I'm going to talk a little, little bit about that. Uh, Halifax Regional Police was involved, but not uh, extensively. Not as extensively as some would have liked them to have been involved. There was a story in the Herald this evening with uh, the head of the Earth Squad for Halifax Regional Police at the time that, uh, or one of the one of their commanders that wish that they had gone on further and done more uh, but that uh, the request for resources uh, was denied up the line uh, and so they didn't. Hard to say whether that would have made any real difference or not but uh, just sort of maybe speaks to the question of uh, the relationship between the two police forces uh, that that uh, didn't take place. Although the uh, the officer mentioned that they were um, you know, worked together and had uh, the capacity to work together. So, I think I'll start back though with the helicopter because that was the first topic discussed. Uh, and I'll also, by the way, at the end, we'll talk a little bit about there was some uh, questions raised, an opportunity for the lawyers, for the participants to just sort of uh, summarize what's taken place this week and the, these witnesses on communications and um, you know interoperability questions. Uh, the public communications issues, so I'll uh, talk a little bit about those as well. That was done at the end of the day. In fact, if you were just to watch any part of today's proceedings, uh, I would probably recommend going to that. I mean, you, you get a sense of what came before it when you see some of the submissions from uh, from Council. All right, so the helicopter. Helicopter uh, certainly could have been one uh, would think a very valuable tool in the search for an active shooter particularly in the wooded area around Portapique, uh, where um, heat's, uh, you know, heat-seeking or heat-identifying uh, capabilities, uh, the, the FLIR capabilities in the helicopter that the RCMP has, would have been very useful. 
but the RCMP helicopter, and they only have one that covers New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, based out of Moncton, which if you're only going to have one, I guess that makes some sense, was what uh, ODS, which means off-duty sick, weird term for machine, from March 1st until May 12th, uh, 2020. So basically two and a half months where the RCMP helicopter, the one for New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, was out for maintenance and inspection. Uh, hard to imagine that that would, uh, what would take uh, two and a half months to fix or inspect, but anyway, that's uh, that was that. There was no plan for a backup, for a backup option. Uh, there was uh, other, there are other helicopters in the area. DNR, Department of Natural Resources in Nova Scotia, has four helicopters and six pilots, but those helicopters can only fly in the daytime, not at night. Seems peculiar. Uh, the Air Force, uh, Air Force has a helicopter in Greenwood, and then uh, Air Force Controlled Joint Rescue and Coordination Center has a helicopter in Halifax. Both could fly at night, but uh, the first call to the Joint Rescue Coordination Center uh, seemed to indicate that they wouldn't fly into for an active shooter situation. They wouldn't use it for that purpose. Later, uh, it seemed to be clarified that, you know, there was this big bureaucratic process of the federal government would need to request it from the, or sorry, the provincial government would need to request it from the federal government and all of this stuff in the background, and it just wasn't going to happen. So it didn't. So... At 6 o'clock in the morning of the 19th, the DNR helicopter was able to be mobilized, although it didn't, it wasn't quite ready to go at 6 o'clock. The pilot was called in then. Gets up to Portapique around 8.30 or so, flies around there for a little over an hour. Uh, doesn't uh, see anything, of course. Well, of course, I guess it didn't, but it didn't see anything uh, of significance. Then it was off uh, north to the site of uh, Lillian Campbell's uh, death and then off to the home of the Fishers where uh, probably the best opportunity for the helicopter to have been in use of use was uh, not it wasn't it kept at a distance from the house there was a miscommunication at one point that the killer may have been in the house when in fact the information was that the uh, Adam Fisher the the owner of the home husband had his uh, gun and he was in the house but the helicopter kept a distance never identified the killer's vehicle and certainly never tracked it anywhere so then the helicopter the helicopter was always a, a step or two behind it goes off to plains road uh, not in time there for any purpose then it has to go back to debert to refuel and at that time while the helicopter was refuel refueling in debert uh, Wartman killed uh, Constable Stevenson, uh, Gina Goulet, and uh, Joey Weber. And then uh, he moved on. The helicopter got to Shubenacadie, and then by the time the killer was uh, shot dead at the big stop, uh, the helicopter still never caught up and then just went back to its home base at Shubenacadie. So uh, anyway, not uh, that's the story of the helicopter. What could have been a very valuable tool to locate the killer overnight. I mean, they were looking for the helicopter within an hour of uh, the first 911 calls. Could have been there, you know, whatever, maybe an hour later, and uh, that would have been that. Or much more information would have been known, at least. 
So that was the helicopter story. Uh, the Halifax Regional Police, uh, they were involved. They were contacted early uh, to because uh, Wartman had his denture clinic in uh, Dartmouth. So they checked on that, saw that he had a, uh, you know, decommissioned police car there with snow covered. Uh, it was snow covered, so obviously hadn't been used recently. So they checked on that. They also, the Halifax Regional Police obtained the uh, vehicle photo, the photo of the replica from uh, Lisa Banfield's sister Maureen, circulated that to the RCMP. And then ultimately the Earth Squad, the Halifax Earth Squad emergency response team did make their way to uh, the big stop, although they uh, weren't, weren't involved in any of the shootings at that point, but they secured the scene or helped secure the scene afterwards. Interesting comment uh, in the night uh, in the Halifax emergency response team uh, head that was sort of complaining that they didn't get involved early or quick enough or with enough resources that uh, they have uh, yeah night vision goggles uh, which the um, could have been useful for the first officers on scene but so uh, the the next next bit of evidence that came in was t dealing with the a radio system, the trunk mobile radio. We've heard TMR radio uh, used, you know, that term used. We've heard issues of the radios not working, people trying to get through and couldn't, uh, you know, they were getting bonged out and uh, people were missing things, switching channels, going from this channel to that channel, all those things. So the, the radio system, as I understand it, uh, okay, so in Nova Scotia, there's there's two sort of systems. One is the older system, which was started, I think, by the Buchanan government in 1978. That's what I've been told. I've been told talking to a few people about this radio system because uh, it seems to have been an issue in the response, the problems with the police getting through. One of the questions I had was the second IR team couldn't go into Portapik because they there's a concern of a blue on blue and well wouldn't better radio communication abilities have allowed that to happen okay so the old system which still exists is called the nova scotia integrated radio network known as shuby radio by most it was owned by the provincial government the system uh, used for many years by ambulance fire highways uh, department uh, and others including the police but the system has fallen into disrepair and was replaced by Trunk Mobile Radio, which is owned, privately owned, by uh, Bell. Now, there's many complaints about this uh, from fire departments, uh, ambulance drivers, others, about the operability of the system. And there's many places in rural Nova Scotia where it just doesn't work because of cell coverage. Uh, Bell says that it works everywhere, but people tell me, firefighters, ambulance drivers, that that is uh, certainly not the case. And one said that everything they said that won't go wrong has gone wrong. Uh, so that's certainly an issue. And of course, we heard from Michael Hallows, the Australian expert on the emergency alert system, that uh, private ownership of the emergency alert system to him was just amazing that, uh, you know, the country would allow that to happen uh, perhaps this emergency radio system uh, being privately owned is an issue as well in particular okay so the there's two kinds of radios there's the mobile radios that are in the vehicles and then the portable radios that you take on your individual person and we've heard that the uh, the cars the rcmp cruisers 
have GPS capabilities and we've seen them uh, being tracked all over the map, but that the individual RCMP officers do not have that GPS. They're not GPS. Well, what I'm told is that the portable radios, in fact, do have GPS capabilities, but uh, it's an extra feature, so likely costs more, so likely uh, was a decision at some point to a budget decision not to uh, and, you know, enable the GPS capability. And then the other issue uh, is the, the power of these things. So I'm told that the mobile radios and the cars have about 20 to 35 watts of power, but the longer you talk, like even after 30 seconds, it goes down to about 12 watts. And, you know, as more people get on the system, then it just it doesn't function very well and it takes away the bandwidth. And that the portables only have the three to five watts, so uh, not very uh, not very useful, uh, or not very capable. Uh, I understand that the Halifax Regional Police has ordered some uh, new technologies are called digital voice uh, digital voice recorders. Anyway, they're uh, very expensive. I uh, understand they've ordered a hundred of them, but it's the the cost is the cost is in the millions for these systems. So. Maybe the way things are going, uh, certainly uh, would think, just given a situation like this, that something with greater capacity is, is needed. I understand also that the province is actually reinvesting some in the old Shuby radio system. I'm not sure if that would be uh, to try to revitalize it uh, for use, or if that is a negotiating tactic or strategy with Bell to make them improve their system. But uh, anyway, something there needs to change. So that was uh, that was mildly interesting, I guess. Uh, we'll maybe hearing more about the radio system as things go along. The lawyers' questions were, were kind of interesting, and uh, in fact featured a few of the younger lawyers, which is kind of nice. I, I think it's good for lawyers to get some valuable experience uh, in a situation like this, up on your feet, having to uh, speak in public. Uh, so we heard from Alex Degu from M MDW Law in Halifax. Working with Tara Miller. Heard from uh, Natasha Shigras from uh, Patterson Law. And uh, earlier this week, also, we heard from uh, James Russell, Grace McCormick, and uh, Matt McClellan as well, of whom are doing good work in, uh, in the inquiry. So just want to give them a little uh, a little shout out. Uh, Alex Degu uh, spoke about uh, and echoing some of Tara Miller's questioning from earlier that the RCMP really didn't seem to learn much from the Moncton. Uh, shooting or the Moncton, the McNeil report that emerged from that and couple that with the fact that they've been denying problems, certainly on an organizational level uh, during the, the commission, it really doesn't bode well for the RCMP adopting any recommendations that may flow from this. So um, just a, a cautionary note uh, appropriately done by uh, Alex Degu there. And Natasha Shigras talked about the alert ready ignorance of the RCMP and focused in on uh, Superintendent Rodier and her comments uh, how, and how little the RCMP seemed to know about it and the, how incurious they were about it, even though other forces were involved and the EMO was presenting this uh, to them. What seemed like it could have been a really valuable tool was just um, mysteriously or, uh, well, it, was, it, it wasn't adopted, it wasn't taken seriously by the RCMP. Uh, Stephen Topshi, who is not a young lawyer, a uh, capable one though, uh, focused his comments on the helicopter 
and how really it seems like a basic point but obviously we had two and a half months where the helicopter wasn't available that, that the rcmp should always have the availability of a helicopter and it always struck me as very unusual that the rcmp wouldn't sort of automatically have a backup with the military both of them are federally federal forces and um would have seemed natural to me that you know that would have been a, a seamless request that you know if the rcmp is asking for this helicopter well just get it in the air but uh certainly wasn't the case so some real questions there all right so that was it for today and that was it for this week uh, it was day 35 of the mass casualty commission proceedings uh, it's going to be a big day on monday uh the it's not on the website for the mass casualty commission but uh, this is going to be the day when frank magazine's application to the Mass Casualty Commission to allow the full videos from the Big Stop uh, to be released and uh, played publicly. Should be, everybody should agree on this, but uh, I suspect they will not. So we'll be watching that closely on Monday morning to hear the arguments and bring that report to you. So until then, uh, thanks again uh, for watching. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.